0: Psalm 15, I hope you'll join me there. I'm gonna read this text to us, and then we'll dive right in. Psalm 15, a Psalm of David, and he writes, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent, the one who does these things will never be shaken. It's a Psalm about Integrity. It's a psalm about the need for our insides to match our outsides and our outsides to match our insides. And David, the writer of this psalm, was very familiar with this reality. Matter of fact, he had an epiphany in the psalm that if you just switch the numbers from 15 to 51, he had an epiphany in Psalm 51 where he realizes in the presence of God, and he says, "Um, so it was never about the blood of bulls and goats. It was never about the ritual activities. What you always wanted, Lord, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O God, you do not despise. What you always wanted, Psalm 51 says, is truth in the inward parts. That's what you were always after, not blood running down burnt sacrifices. You wanted the heart. You wanted real lives lived, wholly devoted, to you, you wanted my insides to match my outside and my outside to match my inside. We, we've had an integrity problem among God's people, not only in the time of David, before the time of David, and not only in the pages of scripture, but all the way up until today. C.S. Lewis, last century, who wrote these words, if ever the book which I'm not going to write is written, it must be the full confession by Christendom to Christendom's specific contribution to the sum of human cruelty. Large areas of the world will not hear us until we have publicly disowned much of our past. Why should they? We have shouted the name of Christ and enacted the service of Molech." Strong words. Jesus brought similar words He stands in front of the religious authorities of his day in the pages of the Gospels, and he says, I I see your lips moving. Your your lips are moving, but your hearts are a mile away from God. You got all the outward trappings. Your prayers are super impressive. You've greased up your face so everybody knows you're fasting. You, You got all the outward stuff. The outside of the cup is incredibly clean, but the inside is corrupt. So we have a problem, because your outsides don't match your insides. And he preaches the greatest sermon of all time, the sermon that made him most famous, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five through seven. And he says, so you, you sing loud, you pray loud, you pray long, uh, but let's talk about some important things. Let's talk about lust. Let's talk about anger. Let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about money. And Jesus says, here's, here's what God wants. He says in that sermon, here's what God wants. He wants your light to so shine before men that they see your good works and give glory to the Father that's in heaven. He wants it to be real, tangible, palpable. You can see it in the way that we live our lives. Off the clock, off the worship clock, in everyday life, you can see that this life is wholly devoted to the Lord, sincerity without hypocrisy, that's the worship that counts, which is the point of Psalm 15. This is the worship that counts. Psalm 15 tells us that the way we live, the way we speak, the way we treat other people, particularly the weak and the vulnerable, which we'll see in just a moment, that that's the index, that that's telling the real story of what's firing inside or not firing inside our hearts. I remember a song that came out. This is back before I was a, a washed up worship leader. There was a song that um, the churches used to sing back in like the late 90s, early 2000s and it was called Heart of Worship. And I, I loved this song because it seemed, at least in my corpus of knowledge of songs, it seemed to fill a gap because it got us verbalizing together in the presence of God words like this. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You're looking for something more than just singing, more than just the outward trappings of worship. You're looking into the heart, you're looking for a life wholly devoted to you. So this passage is God answering a question and the question comes up, that's actually the first thing that we're gonna look at is a significant question. Significant question, and the question is posed to the Lord himself, you see there in verse one. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? So this is in your notes if you're following along with the notes, the psalm, this psalm is often classified as a liturgy at the gate. So just unpack that for a second. The, The holy hill, that he's talking about in verse one, who shall dwell in your holy hill? That holy hill is Mount Zion, surrounded on three sides by valleys. It's right there in Jerusalem. And so the idea being here, all the people of Israel from their disparate places are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to Zion, they're coming from all their different places for the festivals, the great worship festivals that took place there in Jerusalem. And there they are, you can picture them in Psalm 1, and they arrive here at the gate, at the holy hill of God, and there's a kind of liturgy exchange that goes on as the people outside the gate ask the priest, who gets to come inside? Who gets to come into this holy hill of God and worship Him rightly? And that's the question that's asked in verse one. And then the priest would answer in verse two through verse five, B. He would say, this this is who God's people are meant to be. And then the last phrase of this psalm is a promise of blessing. It's the priest sort of um, speaking a benediction over the people. Now, for all kinds of reasons, I don't think that that liturgical exchange was actually a literal thing that took place because the qualifications that are mentioned in this text aren't ritual sacrifices. They're not, you know, the sorts of things that you could just say, hey, did you bring this? Did you bring this? Did you bring the goat? Did you bring the, you know, the, the, the turtle doves, the, the wheat, the barley? Yes, check, check. We, we brought all the stuff. It's not based on kind of ritual, it's going into the kind of intangibles of the life. So it's not a literal liturgy that's taking place on the way into the temple area, it's better than that. Psalm 15 is is God giving his people a song, his ancient people a song, it has relevance for us, but he's giving his ancient people a song to remind them of the kind of people they were becoming under the influence of grace. And so they were singing their way to Mount Zion, singing about this is what happens to us when we come near to God. Real things happen, life things, everyday transformation happens when we come under the influence of the grace of God. So so verse one, it asks what kind of people enjoy the hospitality of God? What kind of people enjoy the hospitality of God? You see those words, who shall sojourn in your tent? So what's going on there? Well, you remember in the Old Testament, God saved his people. The great redemptive event of the Old Testament is God saves his people from slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh's thumb and he, pulls them out and he opens the Red Sea and they pass through on dry land and then the sea closes over the Egyptian army and they sing on the far side of the Red Sea, right? So there's this massive, awesome, redemptive event and then God leads his people through the wilderness. There's a cloud during the day and there's a fire, a pillar of fire miraculously during the night and when the fire stops, it's time to bed down. This is where we camp tonight, the fire has stopped moving. So all of a sudden you just see tents. As far as the eye could see, Tents are being pitched. Two million people strong. As far as you can see, their tents going up. And it looked something like this. So there they are and and there was, even if you read Numbers chapter two, God gave in advance the whole sleeping arrangements of where Naphtali's people and Gad and Zebulun and Dan is over here and Judah's over here and all the families in the clans were grouped. It was all on purpose and right in the middle of that vast expanse of tents in the geographic center of the tents of God's people is God in his tent. God tabernacled. He pitched a tent too. He traveled. He sojourned with his his homeless wandering people bedded down with them at night in the wilderness. And, And you can well imagine, right? You can well imagine little Hebrew boys and girls whispering. They're supposed to be going to bed, but they're whispering to each other, maybe even to the tent next to them. And they're saying, wouldn't it be awesome? How crazy would it be to sleep over in God's tent, to, who gets to do that? Like, who gets to sojourn, to dwell, to sleep, in the tent of God, the one right there in the center of all these tents? And and Psalm 15 is almost reminding us of this beautiful picture of a God who loves to host his people. He loves for his people to come near. He prepares a table for his people. Some of you, you, you stress out about Thanksgiving. Some of us stress out about Thanksgiving, especially if you're having people over, if you're the person who's hosting Thanksgiving, you stress out about that. Others, you live for that, right? You, you love cooking for all these people. You, the louder the house, the better, right? That's, maybe that's where you're coming from, right? That's what you love doing, putting the new centerpiece and out comes the tablecloth. You know, in my house growing up, the only time of the year that the tablecloth came out was Thanksgiving. It was like fancy. And that was the only time you reached for the china, and you brought the china out, and so all the kids were helping set the table. And it's the china, and you got to get the salad fork on the right side, and which is the left side, right? Anyway, and it's the only time that we took the napkin and ran it through that little circle, you know, sleeve thing. It was just fancy. It was awesome. It was exciting because people were coming over, and it's a special occasion. And in a way, this psalm opens with this picture of God spreading the table laying the tablecloth out and he's giving his people a song to sing while he sets the table in Zion. His people are coming from afar, they're making pilgrimage to Zion and they're singing on their way to church. And what are they singing? They're singing about what God does when we get there. They're singing about what God does to his people when we live under the power of his grace. He transforms us, the family is singing, he transforms us on the inside. Who can come? It's a significant question it's followed by a searching answer. A searching answer. David says, who can come near? And the answer can be confusing, so let's just write this down if you're taking notes. Psalm 15 isn't about requirements for salvation, but results of salvation. Not requirements for salvation, but results of salvation. Look, the reason that God's Old Testament people offered sacrifices is precisely because they weren't, verse two, living blamelessly. (laughs) They weren't acknowledging the truth in their heart at all times, on all days, at all moments, right? All these things, its 10 things that are listed there, primarily focusing on the second table of the law, the second table, the commandments five through 10. How do we treat one another? And they hadn't done a great job and they were They were legendary for not doing a great job, which is why the Old Testament sacrifices were in place. So a very blameworthy people could stand in the presence of God blameless on the basis of sacrifice. So sacrifice is the entrance. Sacrifice, the blood that that remits and cleanses sin. And that was pointing forward, we know, On this side of the cross, we know that was pointing forward to this glorious, the Lamb of God, Jesus, who comes into the world to take away sins, to provide the once and for all sacrifice so that God's people can boldly come before the throne of grace. So we don't come, just let there be no confusion as we read Psalm 15. We do not come to worship God on the basis of our moral record. No, only the blood of Christ shed for us, him dying in our place. That's the only basis we have for entering in boldly into the presence of God with confidence is what Jesus has performed, not what we've performed. Because he's done all the stuff. He's done all the 10 things and more and he gives us his record of righteousness when we believe. That's the great exchange. That's awesome gospel reality. So verse two through five, friends, don't mistake it. It's, it's not a checklist. It's not saying, okay, here we are at the gate to the temple, have you been blameless, yes or no? No, okay, then you're gonna have to turn around and try again. You're gonna have to try harder and then let's come back and have this conversation again. No, there's far better news. And that's the news that the church has been singing for centuries. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's gospel truth, that's gospel truth grace that that's the message that lifts burdens that's the message that sends us skipping towards zion because we know the entrance exam isn't one that's going to leave us stuck outside because jesus passed the exam in our place right so then what is psalm 15 if it's not an entrance exam psalm 15 is saying to believers now that you're free who are you going to follow Now that you're alive, how are you going to live this life? This song reminds us of the kind of people we are becoming as we enjoy the welcome of God, as we live under the powerful influence of His grace. Here's the question for us, kind of an introspective question as we think about this psalm. Do we resemble those who have enjoyed God's nearness? The things that are described in this passage are the things that people become when we get close to God. We behold him and we're being transformed, the Apostle Paul says. So do we resemble those who have enjoyed God's nearness? Let's just categorize this in a few different areas. Integrity of life, integrity of life. So verse two could be literally translated, the one who walks with integrity. And that word integrity, in the, the original language, it has to do with completeness, wholeness, soundness, no gaps, that's, that's the idea. It's not sinless perfection, it's soundness, a singularity of purpose. Came across a quote a couple weeks ago of a pastor who said this, hypocrisy is the exhausting scandal of living two lives, integrity is the restful simplicity of living one. Let me say that again. Hypocrisy is the exhausting scandal of living two lives. Integrity is the restful simplicity of living one. Verse two is sort of this overarching picture of an evergreen life, of a life that is flourishing, a life that is fruitful in Christ. But then this Psalm digs into the details and it says, what's it look like? So the next thing, so integrity of life, Second, discreet in speech. So David gave us, in verse two, three things to put on, and in essence, he gives us three things to put off in verse three. Does not slander with his tongue. Does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. If you're thinking like I'm thinking, if only Christian social media accounts knew this verse was in the Bible, how different things would sound, how different things would feel. Does not slander with his tongue, does not harm his friend, does not discredit his neighbor. The scripture speaks with uniformity about the wisdom of restraining one's tongue. He who restrains his lips is wise. There is sin in the multitude of words. Here's another text, Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred's always stirring the pot. And love is saying, no, look, we don't have to focus in with laser eye focus on every single sin that every single person commits. Let's talk about, let's talk with the same brutality about our own sins that we talk about the clarity that we see other people's sins. Here's another text, James three, verse 17 and 18. The wisdom from above is first pure Then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. In other words, James seems to be saying in such a clear way, that we expect to reap a harvest of peace without sowing seeds of peace. So we shouldn't be surprised by a harvest of conflict when we've been sowing seeds of discord. And James is saying, let me show you a better way. The wisdom of God's word. Somebody, I saw a post this week from someone who was asking people, friends of hers on Facebook, if they would be willing to share stories of how they were bullied in school. And to read these comments is just to see the incredible power of words. Of lies, of slander, of rumors, so scripture urges caution, be quick to listen, be slow to speak. The great apologist Dallas Willard, he, uh, he embraced what he called the spiritual discipline of not getting the last word. And he said it was the hardest thing in his life. He said it was deeply sanctified, sanctifying, to embrace the spiritual discipline of not getting the last word. So integrity of life, discreet in speech, allied with the honorable allied with the honorable. So you see those words, who despises the one rejected by the Lord but honors those who fear the Lord. It's just interesting language because you read that on the surface and you're like, okay, so are Christians positively supposed to despise people? Are Christians supposed to actively hate this group of people and really love and respect and honor this group of people? Well, so bear in mind, there are different literary devices that are used in scripture they're not always the same and you have different interpretive tools that come to bear on those devices. So for example, in wisdom literature in the Bible, books like James, books like Proverbs, wisdom literature often speaks in very black and white categories. It's It's not trying to find the gray in the middle, it's not trying to nuance everything to death, it's just saying, let me just draw one line in the world. Boom, lady folly, lady wisdom. Follow her you die, follow her you live forever. It just draws one bold line in the center of the world and it says you either love God or you hate God. That's how wisdom literature speaks. It's trying to push you off the fence. You're not gonna stay on the fence with wisdom literature. You're not gonna read the book of James and stay on the fence. He's gonna push you one way or the other. That's how wisdom literature talks. So there are those who love God, there are those who hate God, there are those who, the ones who love God know his saving mercy, the ones who hate God stand under his judgment. That's not the way the entire Bible, some some other places in the Bible will talk much more sympathetically about brokenness and cisterns that don't hold water and other things. But wisdom literature is pushing you off the fence. Jesus did the same thing. When Jesus was, he was using wisdom literature devices when he said, if you don't hate, you're Father, your mother, your brother, your sister, don't try to follow me. Was Jesus in one fell swoop denying the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother? No, he was pushing you off the fence because he was saying to his disciples, some of you are gonna have to choose whether you're gonna be loyal to your family or loyal to me, and I need to know in advance what that decision's gonna be. So he pushes off the fence. That's how this, this text is speaking So Psalm 15 rightly understood, it's not a justification for hatred, for words of despising, words flowing freely from the lips of believers. When you combine the first phrase you see in verse four with the second phrase of verse four, what's it really about? It's really about your closest friends and your life heroes. Who are your closest friends and who are your life heroes? It's like this Psalm is God saying, you tell me who your heroes are and I'll tell you what you love the most. The text is saying, "Do you love those who fear God? Do you love them the most? Is there a keen fellowship, a koinonia, a deeper, uh, a deeper fellowship with those who love the Lord? Are those your heroes? Integrity of life, discreet in speech, allied with the honorable, and then dependable in our dealings. Dependable in our dealings. You see the words there: who keeps his word, whatever." the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, the people who come near to God, they're not just participating in in festivals, they're not just participating in ritual, spiritual activities, they're becoming trustworthy. They're becoming the kind of people in whom you can confide. You can tell them your struggles, you can tell them your sins, and it's gonna be trapped shut. They're gonna be confidants. That's the kind of people. It's aspirational. Doesn't mean this is actually happening right now in all places, it means this is aspiration. We're singing our way to Zion and we're saying, this is the kind of people we wanna be. This is real worship, living this way. So those words, who keeps his word whatever the cost, the older translations have it this way, he swears to his own hurt and changes not. That would be a person who made a promise and then realized later on, oh, that's gonna be more costly than I thought it was gonna be and instead of breaking the promise, they say, I'll pay the cost. I'll pay the cost rather than break my word. He swears to his own hurt and changes not. I think of John Bunyan, the, the Puritan, who was thrown in jail. He's the author of Pilgrim's Progress and a number of other books that he wrote while in jail. He had time, because he was there for 12 years, in Bedford jail, and they, they came to him, and they said, look, here's the situation. It's kind of an honor system. If you stop preaching Jesus, and you stop telling people the gospel, you get to walk. You can do that today. Like, we'll unlock the door, you can can walk today. 12 years later, he's still in bed for prison. He swore to his own hurt, and he didn't change. God told Israel, "When when you lend money, that's what that next passage or verse is about. Who does not lend his silver at interest? God told Israel in the Old Testament, he said, when you lend money to other people, don't charge them interest. Don't take advantage of people who are walking through hard times. What's going on here, right? What's being described is the person who flourishes demonstrates justice, righteousness, compassion, generosity. These are flowing out, exuding, wafting off the life of believers. We're spending ourselves for the good of others. In other words, the life statement of a person who's living Psalm 15 is, it's not about me. It's about others, serving others in Christ's name. It's not about my individual happiness. Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite modern writers, he says it this way. He says, there's a lot of teaching on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but where can we learn what it means to be emptied in the service of others? That's so rich. That's so counter-cultural in a culture of self-importance that is so deeply counter-cultural. James Calvert went out as a missionary to the cannibals in the Fiji Islands, and the ship captain on the way there turned to him and said this, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. And to that Calvert replied, we died before we came here. There was was this decision that had been made. We're ready to die for the good of these people. It's a Psalm 15 kind of life, it's cultivating that. This is a song we sing on the way to Zion and it reminds us what we're becoming under the influence of grace. A significant question, a searching answer, and third, a stunning promise. A stunning promise, you see, we'll write it down this way. The one who does these things will never be shaken. These things are the everyday things. The one who does these things will never be shaken. Hollywood celebrity Jay Leno, uh, he loves cars. And he actually has a, a show that he does where he invites other celebrities who share the same passion for muscle cars and they go ride in that other celebrity's muscle car and talk about it. Like why'd you get this one, what does it do, what's the zero to 60 and all the specs, they talk about all that sort of thing. Well, one of the, one of the shows uh, he's riding with Elon Musk, the the Tesla guy, basically, he's riding with Iron Man, right? And so he's riding in Elon Musk's uh, the new Tesla Cybertruck. This thing goes zero to sixty in four and a half seconds, and and Jay Leno is driving this awesome truck and Elon Musk is telling him all the things that it can do and he's saying, by the way, that window is armor-plated and, and this, this truck is bulletproof. To which Jay Leno says, did anybody ask you to build a truck? I mean, who wants? Was there like a supply demand? Everybody was saying, I'm not gonna buy a truck unless it's bulletproof. To which Elon Musk just said in the most matter-of-fact way, he said, just, let's just start from scratch, Jay. Would you, would you want a truck that's bulletproof or a truck that's not bulletproof? <laughs> And he said, well, if you frame it that way, yeah, I guess I want the bulletproof truck. Yeah, I'll take that. I guess I do. I didn't know I wanted it, but apparently I I do want the bulletproof model. (laughs) Look, what's going on in Psalm 15? You come to Psalm 15, and it's holding like a, like a magician holds the prestige behind his back and then brings it out right at the right moment. This Psalm is holding what it has to offer back the entire time and then it brings it out in the very last phrase and you find out what's on the offer in Psalm 15? The one who does these things will never be shaken. This Psalm invites us into something we desperately want but we don't always know where to find it. And this Psalm says, you can come and you can trust in the Lord and you can receive this gift called unshaken. This gift of unshakability in the midst of this world. It transcends circumstantial peace. It's something deeper. This Psalm, friends, is a challenge to the church because this psalm barges in on the idea that God would rather loud intensity than quiet integrity. Psalm 15 is all about that second thing, the beauty of quiet integrity, genuine godliness. Os Guinness in his great book, The Call, a phenomenal book, he writes this, tells this story. Thomas Lineker, was King's physician to Henry VII and Henry Eighth, and friend of the great Renaissance thinkers Erasmus and Sir Thomas More. Late in his life he decided to become a priest and was given a copy of the Gospels to read for the first time. The Bible at that time was only read by the clergy. Lineker lived through the darkest of the church's dark hours, the papacy of Alexander VI, the Borgia Pope, whose bribery, corruption, incest, and murder plumbed new depths in the annals of Christian shame. Reading the four gospels for himself, Lineker was amazed and troubled. Either these are not the gospels, he said, or we are not the Christians. That's Psalm 15. These are the kind of people We become when we draw near to God. I just want to say, I've never been a part of a church that is more characterized by Psalm 15, where I I know so many people in this church who live for the good of others, who lay down their lives, who swear to their own hurt and do not change, who work hard because hard work honors God, who are trustworthy, who keep confidences, who open their tables to other people, who open their guest rooms to other people, who are spare with their criticism and elaborate with their praise and their affirmation and their encouragement. And Psalm 15 says, more of that. You think about the question, what what world needs a Psalm 15 kind of church? And the answer is, our world. (laughs) November the 8th, 2020, our world needs a Psalm 15 kind of church so that our light might shine before men and they say, where's your God? So that I may worship him.